Luke chapter 11, verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after He had finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught His disciples. And He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door's already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And he was casting out a demon. And it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if by Beelzebul I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But... If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When the strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him and takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder... He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, even more evil than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Let's pray. Holy Father and Lord Jesus, I ask Your blessing this morning on the teaching of Your Word, and I ask that You will teach us all these things, that You will make the application, and that You will give us the understanding for us to walk these things out in our lives. 
This is critical teaching, but Father, as you know, it's a teaching that many people do not believe these days. So I pray you will increase our faith. Help us to see through belief, even without seeing. And design, Lord, a path for us to walk on that sends us directly to you. Holy Spirit, teach us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our society deals with demons as if they don't exist. From Hogwarts to Mordor, (laughs) we consider evil spirits to be frightening, but fantasy. Wicked, but harmless. We mess with them in our music. We fictionalize them in our books and in our literature. We meddle with them in our movies. We play with them even in our games. People even take on their personas. And the thing is, many people have no idea what they're really dealing with. What's really going on in the spiritual realm. Even the phrase, the spiritual realm, you say that and there are a lot of people who go, eh, whatever. I mean, what real influence does the spirit realm have over this world anyway? Many people don't even comprehend the dark reality of the demonic realm. And it's always been that way. Our ignorance of evil is one of the adversary's greatest tools of deception. Always has been. If Satan can get us not to believe there's a Satan, if he can get us not to believe there are demons, or even if he can get us not to believe they really have a whole lot of influence, or get us to be thoughtless about them, not comprehending what they're doing, ignorant of their schemes, then he has made headway in his program. Let me say very clearly before before we go any further, according to Jesus, Satan is real. He is not a force, he is a person. According to Jesus, demons are actual. According to the Word of God, fallen angels. According to Scripture, active in the spiritual realm and having immediate impact in this world. That's what the Bible teaches. So the question is, are we going to believe that? The Apostle Paul, using an example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, says, Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? And that's absolutely what happened. You know, they would bring sacrifices to the temple. And part of the idea of sacrificing was sharing in that. There were even specific sacrifices. The peace offering. Where the person came and they gave part of it to the Lord and part of it they ate themselves right there. Like a barbecue with Jesus. It's a wonderful picnic there at the Temple Mount. And they would share in the offering. And Paul says, don't you know, you understand, that's what happens, right? If you sacrifice to something, you share in that. And then he says, what do I mean? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And maybe a beautifully clear way to do this would be to set up a communion table in our movie theaters. Wouldn't that be great if if, if it was a requirement to view any movie that Hollywood put out? First you had to come to the table of the Lord, and then you could go on into the theater. How would that change what we partake of in our off time? How would it change 
if we were to pause and share in communion before we made any media or literature or life decision. As Paul says, you can't do the one and do the other. When Jesus arrived on the scene, we've talked about this before, there seemed to be an amazing uptick in demon activity. All of a sudden, more demon activity than than had been seen in years. Now, perhaps that's because the devil was mounting a resistance against Christ's coming. And so, the demonic possession was on the rise. Or perhaps it was simply because Jesus finally exposed the oppression of evil that had been going on that people were not recognizing. That He began to call it out. Even as He began setting people free from that demonic oppression. It's like going down into a basement with a bright spotlight and shining it into the corner and seeing cockroaches just scatter. That's what happened. The light of the world came into the world and the, de- and the demonic began to scatter before Him. They saw Him coming. So amazing that they didn't keep quiet in the people that they possessed, but they saw Jesus coming and said, What do you want from us? <laughs> cockroaches. <laughs> and remember the prophecy of Isaiah 61 that prophecy that Jesus claimed among so many messianic prophecies that one that Jesus says this is the role of my ministry he said he came to, pre- to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners the casting out of demons was truly the emancipation of the enslaved The release of hostages. It was the mercy of God in action. Which is why, as we talked about last week, when He sent the apostles out, and when He sent the 70 out, He gave them the authority to cast out demons. It wasn't about a power play or a show. It was about freeing people so they could hear the Gospel. The mercy of God. Bottom line, when Jesus came on the scene, He cleaned house. He cleaned house. He said in Mark 3, verse 27, No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. In verse 21 of our passage today, it says, When the strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. In the Greek, the word strong man there is ishkaros. Ishkaros literally means someone, it's a person who is intensely violent and powerful. Ishkaros. The strong man is the devil. The strong man is Satan to whom Jesus refers. And he says it's not easy to plunder the strong man's possessions. You don't just walk into Satan's house and start taking stuff. It doesn't work that way. Satan has spent history digging in. And he is armed to the teeth, or was when Jesus came. So how do you take down the strong man? I want to talk about that for a few minutes this morning. The latter half of of this passage of Scripture that we've already read. How do you take down the strong man? Go back up to verse 14. Let's look at this. It says he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. In fact, they were often more amazed by the casting out of a demon that was mute than the casting out of a demon that could speak. 
In Matthew 9.32, it says, As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds were amazed, saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But of course, the Pharisees were saying, He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Why were they so impressed by someone who is mute? This would be a person who is very oppressed, demonically, couldn't even get words out because of the demon... And when that demon was cast out, see, it was, it was considered in Jesus' day that a mute demon was impossible to cast out. Because the superstition at the time was that you had to get a demon to speak its name so that you could cast it out. And if the demon didn't speak, you couldn't cast it out. So the people were even more amazed when Jesus came along and started casting out even mute demons. Remember when Jesus is talking to the demon-possessed man in Gadara, and He says, what is your name? To the demon that's speaking. Because again, you would call the demon's name and call them by name to cast them out. And that demon played a little game. He said, we are legion for we are many. Which name would you like us to give? (laughs) How many names do you think we have? And Jesus just cast them out. He doesn't have to speak the name. Because He is the name of all power and all glory and all wonder. Well, verse 15 says, But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. He says it makes no sense what you're saying. He cast out demons by the ruler of demons, by Beelzebul. By the way, Beelzebul means Lord of the house. (laughs) Lord of the house. The strong man whose house is protected, is secure. He's the Lord of the house. And Jesus says, it makes no sense that you would say the Lord of the house is the one behind the plunder of the house. It doesn't work. Would the Lord of the house gut his own security forces? What commander holds his position by diminishing his capacity and sending his forces home? God did. (laughs) With Gideon. He's the only commander who can get away with that. Back in Judges chapter 7, you may have recall or have read the story of Gideon. Now Gideon had 30,000 soldiers ready to fight against 300,000 Midianites. and, And when it all came down, God gutted Gideon's army down to 300 men. Now go fight. And why would he do that? Because the true power was with the Lord. Because God was both the commander and the force. He was both boots on the ground and the power and the strength behind them. And so in that scene, we see one commander who says, forces stay home. I got it. You guys ride behind me. In fact, it reminds me of Revelation 19 in the return of the Lord where it says His armies in heaven, bright and clean, are following Him on white horses, but He does all the work. We just follow along. We get to go, woohoo! Here we come! Here we come! And everybody's wiped out before we even get there. Oh. We won! It's kind of like being a Seahawks fan. It is, you know? We won! No, we didn't. They won. We watched. That's how it works. But the devil needs his demons. Get that. He needs his forces. He is not the power that some people think he is. Yes, he's powerful. 
but he is well organized. And his forces do his bidding, and he relies heavily on their work. And by casting out the demons, what Jesus was demonstrating was a power far greater than that of the devil. Not a power by the devil, but a a power greater than. You may have heard someone say before, Satan is mighty, but God is almighty. So almighty God is now on the scene, casting out demons right and left. Verse 19, he says, And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, (laughs) by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. You see, the Jewish leaders in that day practiced exorcism. They tried to cast out demons. They had a, a way of going about that. And Jesus points out the double standard. It is gross hypocrisy, Matthew Henry wrote, it is gross hypocrisy to condemn in those who reprove us that which we allow in those who flatter us. Well said. This is again that whole idea of the arbitrary judgment of man that Jesus referred to. When back in Luke 6.37 he said, Do not judge, then you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Luke 6.38, For by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. In other words, Jesus is saying, You guys claim to have your exorcists. But when I cast out demons, you say it's by the Lord of the house. You say it's by Beelzebul. It's a double standard. You guys are doing this, but when I do it, suddenly now it's demonic. It makes no sense. Verse 21, or verse 20. He says, But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And for some that was thrilling. But for many of the Jewish leaders that was terrifying. The kingdom's here. Shouldn't have been terrifying. It was the hope of Israel, right? But for many it was frightening. The finger of God. I love that phrase. If I by the finger of God cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is here. Back in Exodus chapter 8, God had caused the dust of the earth to become gnats in what was the third plague of Egypt. He's really bugging the people at this point. And Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They recognize the power of God. Turning dust into gnats, unbelievable. And Exodus 31 verse 18 tells us when he had finished speaking with Moses upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. And so in Scripture, the finger of God is the manifestation of the power of God, of the presence of God, and of the person of God. And so Jesus says, if I do this by God's finger... The kingdom is here. What he was implying there is not that he was about to establish or set up the kingdom, but that the kingdom is always present where the king is. And so Jesus functioning as the finger of God, the king present on the planet. Psalm 8, very familiar psalm, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. And David writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, 
the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? My God has more power in His little finger than Satan has in all of his forces. And by that power, He makes the enemy and the revengeful to cease. As Jesus cast out demons, He pointed to the source and the substance of the real power. Verse 21. He says, when the strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. Well, of course they are. As I said before, Satan has been digging in. He's been creating a a stronghold on this planet, fortifying his base, securing his position. And he's been doing it since the creation of the world. So again, how do you take down the strong man when he has been here for so long, he has such a design on this planet... How do you go about taking down the strong man? And what we see across history is it happening in five stages. Now, I'll grant you right up front, God could have just gone, and that would have been it. Squash and you're gone. It's not that God had to do it in stages, but He chose to do this in stages. Why? So that our faith would increase. And that while the the faith of people who come to Him in faith increases, Also, that the world through history would have a choice. God allows evil that man can choose. And that's so important to remember at the very beginning when He gave Adam and Eve choice by planting the tree in the garden. Without choice, we're automatons. Without choice, we're robots. Without choice between good and evil, if we were just created to do good, all we could do is good, we couldn't do anything that wasn't good, then how do you know you ever really loved the Lord? How do the angels know? You know, just created in His presence to be in His presence to be worshiping Him. How do you know? And so God has allowed Satan to dig in throughout history so that man can go, I'm going to go that way. Or I'm going to follow you. He's given us the right to choose. Well, five stages throughout history. The overthrow began, number one, in the casting out. In the casting out. That's when the devil really started to lose his grip. The casting out of demons here in the coming of Jesus. Mark 1.34 says he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. By the way, all demons do. They know who Jesus is. Very clearly. I think all people do. And you may say, no, i got some friends that are so far away from Jesus. Yeah, but I think they know who he is. I think there's something in us that knows. In our heart of hearts. And there are a lot of people who claim to believe in Jesus. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I don't go to church. I'm not a Christian, per se. I believe in Jesus. Understand that Jesus is looking for more than belief. Much more. He asks for faith. And faith is something that only exists in relationship. I believe that Angelina Jolie is real, lives on this planet, does the things she does. But I trust my wife because I know her. That's a picture of faith. I have faith in Cheryl. When she says she's going to do something, she'll do it because I know her. I know how she 
thinks and how she acts and how she behaves. And in our marriage there is faith. And there's faithfulness because of that. Angelina Jolie, I never know what she's going to do next. (laughs) Because I don't know her. I have no faith in her. I have no trust in her. I I believe, but I don't trust. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Which is why the demons, in seeing Jesus come up, kept calling out, Who are? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus, what do you want to do with us? They knew who He was. They believed in Him. They just didn't have a relationship with Him. And Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Without faith you can't please God. Why? Because without faith you have no relationship with Jesus. And relationship, relationship, relationship is the point. That we walk with Him and we know Him and we trust Him and we have faith in Him. And it's not religion. And I know I've been hammering on this the last few weeks, but it is not religion that we're dealing with here. It's knowing Jesus. Isn't that better than going to church? And when I say going to church, I don't. I mean, this is good. I like being here. But being here is not what saves me. I'm here because I know Jesus and I want to talk with you about Jesus. And you want to share Jesus with me and and it's all about Him. And it strips all of that religious junk out of the way. So we can just walk with Him and know Him and believe in Him. And faith, that faith is relational as it gets. Knowing there's a Jesus just isn't the same as knowing Jesus. And trusting Him and depending on Him. So, the first blow to the strong man in Jesus' coming was the casting out of demons. The second blow to the strong man came at the cross. At the cross. And that was where the devil lost his arms. Verse 22 says, When someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. Note that. He takes away his armor. And Paul refers to that in in Colossians 2.15. A verse now we've read for three Sundays in a row. In Colossians 2.15, at the cross, the Lord disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. He disarmed the demonic realm at the cross. He took away the weapons. What does that mean? It means the only thing the devil can use against you today is lies, deceit, and accusation. He cannot harm you in the way that He could prior to the cross. He doesn't have the armaments anymore. He has been disarmed. Years ago we were talking about this. Rachel, you probably remember this. And I was talking about that scene in the old Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Some of you have seen it. You know where you've got the black knight standing there saying, None shall pass. And the guy cuts off his arms and he goes, None shall pass. And the guy says, What are you going to do? Bleed on me. It's a flesh wound. (laughs) It's just a flesh wound, he says. He's been disarmed. And so the devil is disarmed. The cross disarmed the devil. That is such good news. We still have Christians running around going, oh, oh, you know, looking in every corner. They're cockroaches. Step on them. You know, turn on the light. Spray the raid, man. But don't fear that which Jesus has conquered. 
that which He has disarmed. Verse 23, Jesus says, He who is not with Me is against Me. And he who does not gather with Me scatters. You know, that's different than what He said just previous. Let's go off note for a second. Go back and look. Let's see. Look at uh, chapter 9. Verse 49. Because seemingly maybe we have a contradiction here. Well, let's, let's deal with that. Luke chapter 9, verse 49. John said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. And Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. It's the opposite of what he said over here. Okay, so, so back there, Jesus says, That guy's casting out demons in my name. Don't worry about it. He's not against you. He's for you. Well, over here, now go back forward. Verse 23 of chapter 11, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not scatter with me, or does not gather with me, scatters. What's the difference? The difference is Jesus. In the one, the person was using Jesus' name was about Jesus in casting out demons. Over here, Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. Because Jesus is the point. He is the power. He is the commander. He is the source. He is what unites us, by the way, here in the Bridge Fellowship. Or in any church fellowship. In fact, He's what unites Christians worldwide. It's not our doctrine. Our doctrines can be different in different ways. A lot of people are wrong about the the second coming of Christ. We, of course, here at the bridge are absolutely correct. But a lot of people have different views about how He's going to return. Okay, but do you call Jesus Lord? Because He's the issue. And He's the center of our faith. But what He says here... When he says, He who is not with me is against me, is very clear. You've got to choose sides. You've got to make a choice. Not making a choice is making a choice. Staying out of relationship with Jesus is making a choice against Jesus. It's very simple. You can enter a relationship with Him and walk with Him on into all eternity, or you can reject that relationship and you have made a decision to live in the house of the strong man. But make the choice. Jesus says, Revelation 3.15, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And nobody likes lukewarm. Blech. When I have a nice hot cup of tea waiting for me, and by the time I get around to sipping it, it's lukewarm. Or a nice cold cup of milk to go with the chocolate chip cookies. And you get there and it's lukewarm and Jesus says I have no tolerance for those who are lukewarm I'm, yeah I kind of believe in Jesus but I got my own thing too I'm kind of this I'm kind of you know I'm agnostic see that's what being agnostic is is it's just not making a choice truth is you've made the choice and Jesus says choose relationship with me well at the casting out The devil, the strong man, was weakened. At the cross, he lost his arms. Through the church, number three, note this, through the church, the enemy remains disabled. He is kept at bay. And this is a remarkable thing, and it's not because of us, gang. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 6 says, You know what restrains him now. 
Him being Antichrist, Him being evil, and Antichrist representing evil in the world, you know what restrains Him so that in His time He will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only He who restrains will do so until He's taken out of the way. Speaking, I believe, of the catching up of the church, of the rapture of the church. And as we shared, I believe it was last week, it may have been Wednesday night, but when the church goes, I believe the Holy Spirit goes with us. Because the power of the church right now to restrain evil is the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us His Spirit, fills us with His Spirit as the church, and we hold back. We stem the tide of evil. Yes, there's evil in the world, and yes, it's bad, but can you imagine if there was no morality? If there was no Christian faith? If there was no activity of the Holy Spirit of the living God? If this was all removed, what would the world look like? And I can tell you in a world, in a word, tribulation. That's what it will look like in the tribulation. But through the church, He holds back. And that's why I say through the church, not by the church. Because it is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through the church holding back evil. Now, we only restrain the work of the strong man. But here's the fourth thing to note, not only in the casting out in the cross through the church, but in the second coming, Satan, the strong man, will be bound for the pit. Turn over to Revelation chapter 20 for just a moment. Revelation 20. The Bible tells us in verse 1, Revelation chapter 20, And if you're wondering where Revelation is, you really need to study your Bible. (laughs) Last book, all the way at the end. (laughs) Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him so that the world would not, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. I think it's marvelous that it's not God, it's not Jesus, it's just an angel who binds up Satan and puts him in the pit. Okay? That's about the relevance of the power there. There's another angel who comes down and, and takes him out. Now we can't let this lie because you've got to wonder what does this mean. It says in verse 3 that after, the thing, after the, these things he must be released for a short time. That after this thousand year reign, this, this, what the Bible refers to as the millennial kingdom, the rule and reign of Christ for a thousand years, Satan is released? Why? Why again, not just... Why not just put him down, Lord? He's a rabid dog. Put him down. He's not going to get any better. The reason why Satan is released is to allow millennial mankind, that is, those who are born and raised in that kingdom age, the same choice that we have. You see, for a thousand years, Jesus is going to rule and reign on the planet from Jerusalem. And the Bible is very specific about this. And during that rule and that reign and that authority, that perfect peace, that that near paradise, the earth restored to, I believe, an Eden-like state, it's going to be marvelous. For a thousand years, it's going to be very easy to believe in Jesus because you will see Him. People on earth at the time will go up to Jerusalem. There He is. 
see him in his world tour. <laughs> we'll have the righteous government of Jesus throughout the world. So the Bible tells us is those who came to faith in him in the church age. And so righteousness will rule and reign. Goodness will be over the whole planet. And people will, children, Isaiah tells us, are going to be born in that millennial age. They're going to grow up in that. Easy to believe. Everybody goes, it'll be like the 50s, everybody goes to church. (laughs) Now I tell you, and you probably know this, a lot of people in the 50s went to church with zero faith. But they went because that's what our culture did. You just go. And so there will be that that mentality during the kingdom age. But at the end of it, we'll look at verse 7 of Revelation 20. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. What's the reference to Gog and Magog about? That's a whole study. It's online. Revelation 20. Go listen to it. To gather them together for the war and note this, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. What does that mean? That's how many people will rebel against Jesus after a thousand years of His perfect rule, reign, and righteousness. How is that possible? Because the sin nature of mankind is that bad. That is how dark the heart. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And by the way, the Greek words forever and ever mean forever and ever. I'm a scholar. The devil is finally destroyed in the lake of fire in, number five, the consummation of all things. And so you see five stages of the destruction of Satan. And it begins with diminishing his capacity to do what he does in the casting out of demons, and it ends in the consummation of all things, and Satan finally is put away, finally done in. But read on. That's a little bit of demonology for you. Going back to Luke now, Luke chapter 11. We come to Demonology 101b. Verse 24. And this is interesting. Jesus gives us some insight here. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Now, hold on right there. This tells us a lot about demons, just this one sentence. They're restless. They're homeless creatures. And apparently, demons do not like to be disembodied. Just ask the pigs who took a dip in the Sea of Galilee. Demons want something to inhabit, somewhere to be. They want a host. They want a place that they can wreak havoc. A place they can raise a little hell, if you will. They want to be connected. And when they are cast out, Jesus says, this is interesting, They pass through, they wander through waterless places seeking rest. Why do they wander through waterless places? Well, Jesus said they're unclean. (laughs) There's no water. Dirty creatures. Filthy. But waterless places, what does that indicate? Well, it indicates they lack the washing of water with the Word. Ephesians 5.26 They exist, note this, they exist with no access to the living water, the Spirit of God. 
No wonder they're restless. No wonder they're discontent. Always looking for something. A place to inhabit. A place to land. And trying to get... how Man, in the history of rock and roll, isn't it interesting how many musicians die of drug overdose... And on the way there, I'm thinking right now just of John Bonham of, of Led Zeppelin, drummer of Led Zeppelin. How they went from hotel to hotel to hotel as they were on tour restlessly, breaking up rooms, shattering TVs, smashing glass, destroying it. The destruction in the wake of that band alone is legendary. And ultimately the destruction overcame John Bonham as he died. Philip Seymour Hoffman was found dead a week ago. Was it? it was Super Bowl Sunday. Found dead in his apartment with a needle in his arm having overdosed from heroin. A, an amazing gifted actor. Restless. Wandering. So that's what the demons do. And that's what happens when you do not have the Spirit of the living God indwelling you. You're restless. You're not settled. Like the demons. You, you, you try to settle down. You, you want to have it a home a location, but it doesn't work. And Jesus says that's exactly what goes on in the demonic realm. They never know peace. They never know rest. They wander through places that are dry and arid. And I think that's literal, but I also think it's spiritual because the water of the Spirit is not with them. And continuing on, it says, not finding any, not finding any rest. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Well, then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. They go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Why? Because seven spirits indicates a complete overthrow. Now it's not just one annoying little demon. Now it's a completely overrun house. Now please listen closely to this. A clean house is still vulnerable. A clean house, emptied out perhaps of sin or addiction or other behaviors, cleaned and purified, is still vulnerable. Why do good people do bad things? Why does the addict slip back into addiction? Why do so many young people, as Jim was sharing a week or so ago, why do so many young people graduate high school and leave church? Those who are raised in it. Why at the millennial kingdom is the number of those in rebellion like the sand of the seashore? And why, for that matter, do churches, one time strong in doctrine, pervert the truth? And I'll tell you why. Empty houses. Empty houses. Even the clean house that is temporarily set in order but is spiritually uninhabited is easy prey for these disembodied demonic interlopers. And that's something that maybe you hadn't thought about before. I hadn't. But what demons do is they look for a place to crash. They're looking for somewhere to dwell. And it doesn't matter if it's clean. It just needs to be empty. And if they find a spirit that is empty, that's where they like to land. I have got a full house right now. Not of demonic interlopers. (laughs) 
<laughs> I have a full house. I have six kids. All of my children are home. I have, you know, two parents, myself and, and Cheryl, two grandparents. So there's ten of us in the house right now. Pray constantly for me. But my point is this. What is the likelihood of someone taking over my house by, by squatting? You know, squatter's rights. They're just going to show up, pitch a tent in my front yard. They're going to stay there as long as they can until ultimately my property becomes theirs. What's the likelihood with ten of us in the house? It's little or none. What's the likelihood of thieves breaking in because no one's at home? You know, the standard MO of of thieves is look for a house that's empty and break into that house. Or look for a house where you know the pattern everybody leaves during the day and all day long, eight hours or so, nobody's there. There's always somebody at my house. Trust me. Always. It's never quiet. And when all the human beings leave, there's Reggie. I mean, it's just... uh... But it's a full house. And one of the reasons that I am not concerned... Now granted, someone could try to break in forcefully. And that kind of robbery happens from time to time. But but most theft happens when there's nobody there. The best way... Listen, the best way to continue in the relationship, in the work of Jesus Christ, debilitating and detaining and destroying demonic work in this world is a full house. If the house is full, the demonic cannot get in, nor does it want to. Now go back to verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after He had finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught His disciples. And He said to them, when you pray, say... Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. He repeats the Lord's Prayer. This is not the Reader's Digest version. This is a repeat of what Jesus had already taught in the Sermon on the Mount. This is yet another teaching of Jesus. And He's taking His disciples who asked Him to teach them how to pray. He's taking them back to that teaching and He's reiterating it. He's just hitting the highlights. He's nailing the the, the bullet points. And He shows how to furnish our houses with seven right attitudes. Seven attitudes. And you're going, oh no, we got seven more points to go. Rick, you've been... I, they're quick. Just jot these down. You don't even have to jot them down. They're right here in the Scriptures. First off is the attitude of praise. Father, hallowed be your name. That the house that is filled with worship is a house that is not inhabitable by demons. Because it's filled with praise. Psalm 22 verse 3 says, You are holy, O you who are enthroned upon, or literally inhabit, the praises of Israel. Praise invites the inhabitation of God. Worship draws the Spirit to want to stay and remain in that house. So praise. Secondly, priority. Your kingdom come. Priority. The house that is prioritized on the kingdom of God is a full house. Your kingdom come. Matthew 6.33 Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. 
Third attitude, portion. Give us this day our daily bread. I think it's interesting. Jesus doesn't say, give us this day our weekly bread, or our monthly bread, or our stale bread, or our holiday bread. He says, give it to me every day, Lord. Jesus says, pray for the feeding of the Word. Daily. Ask the Lord to bring the feeding of His Word. Do you receive a daily portion from the Word right now? I think it's a great measure of where you're at with Jesus. Are you receiving a daily portion of the bread of the Word of God? If the last time you even opened your Bible was last Sunday, but you keep it on the stand right by the door so you can grab it on the way out, you know, (laughs) you're denying yourself the daily portion. Praise, priority, portion. Number four, penitence. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins. Number five, pardon. And I like how he says it here. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. By the way, Jake, that's a vision statement right there. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. I like the way Jesus says that because He's not saying the way it is, He's saying the way it can be. And He wants us to have that mentality that we are... I don't always forgive everybody. But if I am praying this, forgive me my sins as I, for I myself also forgive everyone indebted to me, it keeps me in that process of, of seeing myself as a forgiver. That this is what I do. I forgive people. This is my attitude. Yeah, I know I slip up. I know I don't always do it. But I want to have the mentality. I want to wear the t-shirt. I'm a forgiver. Jesus says that's the right way to go. Praise, priority, portion, penitence, pardon. Number six, protection. Lead us not into temptation. Boy, you're praying against those demons right and left here. Filling up the house with great furnishings. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. We're all tempted. We all face the same stuff. Different ways, but it's all basically the same temptations. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And I believe that way of escape is Jesus. He's always the way. And then number seven. See how quick that went by? Persistence. Persistence. Look at verse five. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Oy vey! I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Look, take whatever, just go away so I can go back to bed. (laughs) Persistence, persistence, persistence. In Luke 18, Jesus will tell the parable of the widow who goes to the unjust judge and keeps going to him, and finally she buds him so much, he gives her, he grants her her request because of her tenacity. And Jesus says, that's the way to pray. Not because Your father is not an unrighteous judge. He's the perfect judge. But you persist. You bring prayers to him again. And I've been praying for a week and God's not answering me. Pray more. I've been praying for ten years for what God's doing in this church. 
And you know what the Lord would tell me? Rick, you're just getting started, bud. Pray with persistence. Pray, pray, pray. Luke 18 verse 1 says He was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Persistence. Now look at verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be open. You Bible students, you Greek scholars know ask, seek, knock here are verbs in the present active imperative form. What does that mean? Imperative means it's a command. Jesus is commanding you to ask, seek, and knock. But the present active form of the verb means what he's saying is keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. It's not a one-time event. It's not a single deal. You keep doing this. You stay persistent in this. Don't stop. Make it a practice of persistence. Seven furnishings for the house. Praise for the Father, the priority of the kingdom, the portion of the word, penitence in me, pardon for others, protection against temptation, and persistence in prayer. But I run through those quickly for this reason. You need to understand, gang, furnishings don't fill a house. I read through this and realized something I never thought before. I've seen beautiful model homes, finely appointed, lavishly furnished, nice feng shui. (laughs) And still completely empty. A model home, by nature, is a home that's there to sell other homes. No one's living in it. It's the weirdest thing in the world. You walk into a model home, oh, that's a nice bedroom, oh, nice wallpaper, hey, I like the kitchen table, and you come around the corner and there's a little desk in an office and the realtor's sitting there. (laughs) I wouldn't put my desk there, but I guess, you know, if that works for him. He doesn't live there. Nobody lives there. It's nice looking, but it's an empty house. What are you saying, Rick? Listen. Even the Lord's Prayer, spoken with great persistence, can leave you empty and exposed. A lot of people grew up knowing, quoting the Lord's Prayer religiously. Every Sunday, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God gives us freedom and we want to be automatons. It's amazing. (laughs) The only way, gang, to effectively fill the house is what Jesus says next. Suppose one of you fathers is asked by a son for a fish. Will he, not get, will he give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he's asked for an egg, will he even not get him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. That's number eight, presence. The house needs presence. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit. Without the presence of the Holy Spirit, you've got a nicely furnished house, but it is still empty. Well, how do I get the Holy Spirit? Well, that's easy. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38 Enter into a relationship with Jesus. You know what He wants to do? Pour His Spirit into you. Fill you with His Spirit. When we try to furnish the house with the works of man, even the religious works of the law, 
The house remains empty. If we are absent of the Spirit of Christ Jesus Himself, we are hollow and our lives are exposed. But Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, You are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. His Spirit. And we've got to underscore this. The actual, personal Spirit of Jesus Christ Himself would love to come and inhabit your home. Perhaps He already does. I assume with many, if not most of you, that Jesus is already comfortably living in your house. That He's already present there. Jesus said in John 14.23, If anyone keeps the law, follows Rick's seven-point plan of furnishing... does the work that I have set forth for Him. No, Jesus says, if anyone loves Me, He'll keep My Word, and My Father will love Him. And we will come to Him and make our abode with Him. I remember the first time I read that, I was ten years old. That was the first time I understood it. That verse is what caused me to give my life to Jesus at the age of ten. Because I read it and I thought, what? Jesus will come live with me? Which means I don't have to go to church anymore, Mom and Dad? No, that's not what it means, Rick. (laughs) He will make His home here? I was so stunned by that. So absolutely blown away by that amazing thought. Too huge for me to comprehend then or now that Jesus Himself by His Spirit would come and dwell. That the Father would come and dwell by His Spirit. I love how Paul writes in in Romans 8, he talks about the Spirit of Christ. And he talks about the Spirit of Him who raised Christ from the dead. Why? Same Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, same God, same Spirit, same person indwelling us. And when He makes His home in you, He fills the house. God is in the house. Every nook, every cranny, every aspect of the house that is my being, He would fill. Which is why He's already poured out His Spirit. In Mass, He's given all of Himself to those who would receive Him. To those who would just open up our our homes to Him. Come reside here. Live here. Fill me, Lord. And He fills the house completely. Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. May we be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ. Jim was talking about the love. The love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Hallelujah. And that, my friends, is how we push back against the demonic realm. That's how we keep these vessels pure and clean, filled with the Spirit, and not empty, allowing the invasion of the enemy. 
Are you full of the Holy Spirit? Do you have Jesus dwelling in? Have you been born again? Several times recently I've made this comment. If you're born again, you know it. If you're not sure, you may not have been born again. And if you're in that place, be born again. It's very simple. But if you are born again of the Spirit of the living God, you know. Romans 8 goes on and says, His Spirit testifies with my spirit. There's an absolute knowing. I know He's here. I know Jesus is in the house. I know He's dwelling within me. Have you been water baptized? Signifying the inward change with an outward behavior, a command of Christ. Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Revelation 3.20 Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Jesus, again, may already be well at home in some of your lives. But with others, He may be standing at the door and knocking this morning. Will you let me in? Jesus, what a wonder You are. I thank You, Lord, for Your patience with me across so many years. Patience with me to, to Lord, though as a 10-year-old, I knew I wanted You to indwell me. I've spent years since then trying to figure out how to fill up my house with all the furnishings. I've spent so much time trying to figure out how to do the right thing and how to keep the laws and the requirements and the religion. And You know, Lord, there have been a time in my past where it was exhausting. I am so thankful You were patient with me to teach me to remain with me and to show me that what matters in a full house is your spirit being here. And I love having you here. And I'm sorry, Lord Jesus, for the times that I put you out because of my wrong attitudes. I'm sorry, Lord, for the times when I'm more impressed with my furnishings than remembering you are here. And Father, I pray that you would so fill this fellowship, so fill this house of believers, this body, that we would be enabled by Your power and presence to push back the demonic activity in this area. The casting out of demons, not for the thrill, but the, the driving away of the darkness, Father, so that the light of Jesus Christ can fill this place, can fill this island, these islands, Lord this whole northern Washingtonian area. We ask that Your Holy Spirit would do the work that You have set forth to do and that You would use us to accomplish this. And Father, I pray for anyone this morning who is uncertain of where they stand with You. Maybe, Lord, there's someone here who has believed in You but never given their life to You. And I pray that today will be the day I ask Your Spirit to be knocking. Lord Jesus, knock on the door of every heart here. And may we let You in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up together.